Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park So I thought my dog was in the kitchen and he wasn't, so I walked into my room and he'd eaten my whole bag of Twizzlers. Seriously, so mad, lol. Okay, and uh, welcome back to Conspiranormal. This is uh, your host, Adam Sane. And this is your bro, Luke Reed. Alright, Luke. I understand that you've become a lifeguard. Yes. I think you might have mentioned that in one of the last episodes, but uh, yeah, I'm guarding lives. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty scary, man. (laughs) It is. Yeah, even for me, it's a little Guarding some lives is really... You know, and I don't even remember half the stuff. (laughs) (laughs) You're gonna... You're gonna, you're gonna just uh, like uh, the, uh, like the, let the fat chicks drown and, the, yeah, get, and get the hot save ones. Save the cute young. It's gonna be a hot one and a fat one, and you're gonna be like, together. oh yeah. whatever, the fat one will float. <laughs> I'll be like, lifeguard needs assistance <laughs> over there. <laughs> I got this one. Well, anyway, uh, I just wanted to talk about uh, real quick to talk about the uh, bombing in Boston. I figure enough time has gone by to where we can kind of talk about it with a. With a better perspective than most people have talked about it. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on some of it first before we went on. Well, first of all, uh, I've been so busy with everything going on right now that I haven't been paying any attention to the news. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they got into a debate I saw, like, on Fox and everything about uh, the, the drones that they were using and if they should have used the uh, surveillance drones to find the guy that I can't pronounce his name Okay. Tom Relance, Sarnayoff, and his brother Zokor. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, they, yeah. they were using drones to try to find him. They found him up underneath that boat, and they ripped the tarp with that uh, that tank, the SWAT tank. Well, supposedly he was uh, hiding out in a boat, Yeah. and the guy had seen like a pool of blood, like a, well, like a path of blood leading up to right, his right. boat. And so he, uh, he, he had called the police. Which you know, here's the guy just laying and laying there in the blood, it laying there in the boat bleeding, and uh, you know he doesn't really just even go over there and just decide, you know, hey maybe this guy's just really hurt, and uh, you know of course he calls the police, but he might have been able to do something else before yeah. they shot the boat up. 
And of course, there's all sorts of conflicting uh, information about that. But uh, <clears throat> this is what I think has happened with uh, the whole Boston Marathon bombing. Listening. I believe that uh, it's probably an FBI. It was probably an FBI setup. Uh, the FBI has been known to set people up from time to time. It's kind of like a form of entrapment where they find these people, and usually young men, usually around uh, between the ages of 19 and 30, and they get them to uh, <clears throat> go ahead and they set it up with them. Like so, like the FBI, one FBI agent acts like they're going to they're gonna help them out and they're going to supply them with, with bombs or some other material in order to do a terrorist attack. There was a case in point where a Somali uh, national who was in the United States was wanting to bomb the uh, Portland, Oregon Christmas tree in 2009, and he had been set up and um, <clears throat> by the FBI. The FBI had been the ones that were, were calling him, talking to him, and helping him set it up, and then at the last minute, they go in and swoop in. So I think that that's probably what happened with uh, Tamerlan Zarnayev, and that they had uh, they had him probably set up to take the fall. Uh-huh. Uh, that they were gonna, and then they were gonna swoop in at the last minute and say, "Okay, well, hey, we look good. The FBI looks really good. We just prevented a major bombing." Right. But somehow, he probably uh, he probably really outsmarted them. So that's what I think is more than likely the case. Uh, it's possible that he. And I'm talking about the older brother because I think the younger brother was just an accomplice. Right. I think he's just proud, you know, how it is. You know, the older brother had all the right, plans. Right. It's like, you know, your brother, you know, you've got an older brother, and you, know, you kind of look up to him, and, yeah. and when she's been on the show, and, and you, uh, <clears throat> you know, you look up to him, and that's, you know, you just become a, you would just become an accomplice probably from some kind of pressure he's getting from his older brother. Mm-hmm. Uh <clears throat> What I found most interesting about this whole thing was this, uh, what had happened in Boston uh, that Friday while they were looking for uh, the younger brother. Actually, they shot the older one. Uh, They shot him. Of course, there's been some odd things about that. And Mother has come out and said that... uh, Supposedly there was a naked man that was shown being arrested on Friday, and his mother said that that was Tamerlan, the older brother. Uh, uh, yeah, here we go, the identity confusion right, again. Right, And so, you know, things just get confused. But they shot, the younger brother was shot. And as I said before, he's running around the city pretty much bleeding, uh, bleeding, bleeding to death. And what do they do in Boston? They got like three other like police departments together. Cops are out there with like armored vehicles uh-huh. and uh, uh, tanks and dressed in military fatigues, telling people to get out of their houses, uh, when, telling people to stay in their houses. Yeah, w- which is most likely like an an uh, <coughs> a too big of a display uh, just to demonstrate their right. power, you know, yeah. over. They have their, their authority just to further... It's also like, a violation of the Fourth Amendment. To further push their authority, yeah. Which is, you know, unwarranted search and seizure. You can't... I saw a picture of a of a woman uh, coming out of her... Uh, coming out of her apartment. And <clears throat> those two cops, or, or two or three of them in SWAT gear, got their guns pointed at her. You know, obviously she's an accomplice, you know. 
and the little kids that were in the houses and the, the people that were just in a they were they were all accomplices you know this whole idea of everybody's guilty is just ridiculous yeah. and that kind of movement makes me really think that maybe there was some other kind of pre-planned thing that was going on that maybe that was just an excuse just to show a, a, a gross amount of power and see what we can do you know it, it's very mu- it was very much just like what what the definition of martial law so so do you think that, um, it's a possibility that this person was already planning the attack the FBI knew and let it allowed it to happen or do you think the FBI set it all up from the from the get go, like, you know, made him do it and everything? Yeah. Well, I think that what it was was that what I personally think, my theory, is that they were gonna set him up and they were gonna come in at the last minute and they were going to <clears throat> they were gonna catch him in the act. And for some reason, I don't know what that reason is. Uh, he outsmarted him. I'm talking oh, about Tamerlan. Oh, gotcha. Somehow he he somehow because the FBI has been known to supply materials, but it's usually been fake materials. So maybe he decided that oh maybe he caught on to it, and maybe said okay well I'll just go to some some other plan. So I think the FBI really screwed it up. Yeah, and it happened. Yeah, and um, <clears throat> it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't supposed to play out the way it was. Uh, there are several things, like, uh, you know, Alex Jones on his website, he had these pictures on of uh, basically people in the um, in the crowd around the marathon with, uh, you obviously can see they had, like, earpieces in their head. You know, they they looked kind of military. And, you know, I think that that could, that could easily explain the FBI theory could easily explain that because they were probably guys that were watching those two guys and they <clears throat> they messed up yeah. so somebody messed up yeah uh, do you think there's that any- possibility there's always a possibility it was allowed to happen but I think it's just a screw up and I think you're probably going to see a bunch of FBI officials start resigning yeah, here in the next true. Few months, we'll we'll have to months. look out for that then. We'll have to watch yeah. for that. What were you going to ask me? Do you think there's anything behind this whole passing CISPA the, the uh, same time that the, this whole deal with the marathon's been going on? Uh, quite truly, I don't know. There's always a, a distraction, though, whenever kind of that yeah. um, and that's, and it, legislation a, like that goes I through. haven't really looked at the bill closely or anything like that, but it seems like a pretty big deal. I mean, because yep. just just like a warrant search and seizure, like you were ta- just talking about with the boat, now they can do that on people's computers, and, mm-hmm. and you know they were they've been spying all along with the hidden Microsoft files and everything else. But yeah. uh, now it's just blatantly like, hey, we're allowed to do this, and we don't care. <laughs> you yeah, know, thank you, thank you, Bill Gates. Yeah. Uh, Apple, <laughs> Apple's about the same, right? You know, they, all they're, their... they're they're worse. Yeah, they're right. worse. Of course, I love my iPhone. What can I say? You know, I'm just jacked into the system. I guess. And once again, I'm anti. I'm anti Apple everything. <coughs> yeah, I've noticed. Any any device that takes away your user control is just worthless to me. Yeah. So that's what I think is going on. I think it was an FBI setup. Uh, I haven't heard a lot of people talk about this. Um, I've heard the whole flash false flag meme going on. Uh, I don't think that this was false flag in the sense that it was. Uh, government that did it, but uh, it's very possible that a government agency uh, that this was just a big screw up. 
Yeah. Uh, it's also possible that this Tamerlan guy, you know, he had been uh, contacted by the FBI. Uh, the FBI had been watching him. So that to me just uh, it puts a red flag up to think that maybe, you know, the FBI was trying to set him up. Yeah. And that they were going to look really good and say, hey, somebody's going to try to bomb Boston Marathon, but we look what we did and swoop in like heroes. Mess it up. Now's, now's the perfect time for some Alex Jones voices, you know, to, to go in with all of the characters. <laughs> and he was on there, he's just like, that's a false flag attack, my God! Ah! How can you people not see this? How can you not see it? And he immediately called it as a false flag. Uh, one of his guys was in the crowd, I think I mentioned this, uh, he was at a press conference, I think I mentioned this, although I didn't know at the time it was one of Alex Jones' guys on our last show and that, we recorded that like right the day that that happened mm-hmm. and uh, uh, one of his guys is in there just saying hey is, is this a false flag to take away our rights and the governor of the state is, uh, of Massachusetts uh, says he says just looks at him and says no you know so that was it, easy yeah well the one interesting thing about the, about the governor of Massachusetts was uh he was at a press conference, and he was asked uh, whether he'd seen the video. Supposedly there's a video out there that shows the two brothers placing these bombs, okay, uh, in the crowd, that they're actually putting them down. And uh, what happens is uh, somebody asked him about that, and he says, well, have you seen the video? And he said, no, I haven't seen the video, but it's been described to me. <laughs> Wow. I mean, who who is describe? First of all, who's describing it to him? And second of all, why can't the governor of the state of Massachusetts see a video that lasts probably about thirty seconds yeah. of that? Well, I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all to I, me. Yeah, I, I don't know about all that though. I mean, because he's he's probably a really busy man. <laughs> yeah, but and, I mean, something like that that happens, a bombing that kills four people yeah. and wounds a whole bunch of other people Yeah, yeah at you're, the Boston you're right, Marathon. Though. You're right, though, because that does seem uh, <laughs> detrimental that yeah, he watches seems, that video. I mean, that's pretty very, important. very odd. He should watch that. He should see that, be able to see yeah, that video. That's pretty important for, to him. <laughs> uh, that's very, very strange. And you always, you, you always have strange things about this. And the thing is, is that, you know, False flag attack or not, on this one, I don't think we're ever going to get the full story. No. We're never going to know the Who full does? story. <laughs> Just like Sandy Hook, yeah. we're never going to know Mexican that story. Yeah. Radio yeah. school. Uh-huh. And we're never going to know what's what, what exactly happened. No. Because it will eventually come down to us as some kind of whitewashed, um, just a whitewashed story. That's how it works. Yep. Yeah, you and I know that. I think most of our audience probably does too. Yep. But anyway, I think we've bored them enough. So uh, we're going to go ahead and contact our guest here in a second. His name is Adam Ellenboss, and he has written a book called Fishers of Men. came out about three years ago, and it is about uh, an ayahuasca vision quest that he went on. And I just finished the book today, and I must say that uh, it's probably one of the best books I've ever read. There you go. Uh not necessarily because of the ayahuasca aspect, but uh, he gets into a lot of personal things, and the guy is a hell of a writer. So we're going to go to him, and uh, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal.
Okay, and we are back on Conspiranormal. You know me. This is Adam. This is Luke. And uh, we have on the line Adam Ellen, boss. Uh, so you need to, uh, you know, make it uh, known who you're speaking to, Luke, because we got the same name. So, oh, uh, gotcha. <laughs> but uh, as I mentioned before, Adam is uh, the author of a book called Fishers of Men. And uh, it is an excellent book about the gospel of an ayahuasca vision quest. And uh, he has the rights for the uh, Reality Sandwich blog. Um, and I just wanted to get him on here. I wanted to talk about his experiences uh, with ayahuasca, which I know is something that you're particularly interested in, Luke. Oh, yes, so, uh, Adam, we just want to welcome you to the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. It's, it's cool to be here. I like what you guys are up to. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to kind of get to, you know, uh, you, you know, tell people that are not familiar with who you are. I mean, who you are, uh, you know, tell us about uh, about what it is that you do. And uh, that's like what ayahuasca is, if nobody's, uh, maybe some people may not be familiar with it, what it is. Sure. Um, well, uh, so I'm, I'm a, one of the, one of the contributing, uh, or one of the founding writers now, sort of contributing editors of a website called Reality Sandwich. Um, and uh, it's kind of a web magazine devoted to all things, uh, all things human consciousness, the evolution of, of human consciousness, you know, sustainability, permaculture, conspiracy theory, aliens, hmm. crop circles, uh, psychedelics, the whole it kind of runs the gamut. So um, I, that's one thing. That's kind of how I got started in, in this line of work. I, I was a graduate student. And I started writing for them. And, and then... Um, uh, see, I, through working with ayahuasca, kind of an entire spiritual path opened up for me, and now I'm co-owning a yoga studio called Skyhouse Yoga, which is here in Silver Spring, Maryland, and um, I'm also uh, also uh, kind of my full-time job is that I'm a, I'm a professional astrologer. Um, I own a, an astrology school called Nightlight Astrology, so we have you know students that study with us at our school year-round, and different teachers, different astrologers that come in from all over the country to uh, teach various uh, styles of astrology, and um, uh, you know, other than that, I was like, I, I like to write, of course. So I, you know, I'm working on a second book right now, but um, okay. but that's so that's me. And and you know, if you don't know ayahuasca, my first book was obviously about ayahuasca. That's really what opened everything up for me. And and ayahuasca is a um, the sort of sacred plant tea that's made in the Amazon. Um, it's prepared by the cooking of a particular leaf from the jungle and a particular type of vine and they're cooked together in water in a pot over fire for a long period of time and kind of boiled down into a sludgy uh, kind of disgusting tasting tea um, and, and then you know people we, we, you know, we drink this tea with a shaman people do this and um, of course this goes back many hundreds perhaps even thousands of years and uh, after drinking this sort of psychedelic potion, um, you have uh, so it's it's some people describe it like uh, you know it's like lucid dreaming you know but but you're completely awake. Other people describe it as like you know psychotherapy on steroids, and you know it's 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 a very unique, um, otherworldly experience. It's not unlike any other variety of mystical experiences from you know, Vipassana retreats where you're, you're in silence meditating for 10 days straight or intense vision quests into the wilderness or, or anything like that. It, it's an experience that people 
go to for a lot of different reasons and, and generally come out with some pretty similar kind of mystical results that help people find a sense of meaning or a, a path or a connection to God or the universe. Adam, what was um, what was your motivation in taking it? What what did you I mean, why did you want to take it? What did you hope to get out of that experience? Well, um, I think it was a channel of sorts, uh, a channel of information and of experience that was opening in my life at the time that I was very curious about. I had had a number of psychedelic experiences on other with other drugs, um, mushrooms. Of course, I use the word drug very very lightly. I think many you know most early people on our planet that used these substances considered them uh, sacraments or medicines. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, mushrooms and you know, a number of other psychedelic experiences. And really, um, it just really started opening my mind to um, sort of two very different realities that I was living with. And one was sort of this hyper-analytical, Western, materialistic, empirical, you know, secular, materialist, that whole thing. And, um, and then there was this other side that was really active and dynamic and intuitive and completely paradoxical and mysterious and, and yet you know the, the ground of much of my being and and, um, and much of my life was was this other sort of mystical side of my consciousness uh, dreams and you know and anything else that, that just you know that sort of more intuitive and and really um, I was just I was in graduate school I was studying creative writing and I had the opportunity to create an independent study in travel writing and I just decided, you know, I'd read about um, ayahuasca and also iboga, which is another very powerful plant substance. It's you know, sort of like the mothership of all psychedelic experiences. And I think I was just kind of, you know, like, you know, it's like skydiving. I was like, well, this, I, I want to push myself to, to the limits, I guess. I, I really want to see what's out there. And um, I, I can just consider myself a seeker, I guess. And, yeah. and so it was really just a, a combination of an adventure and just a, a really deep desire to break free of the mundane answers that were, were sort of being handed to me by culture. What did you call the other plant that you just mentioned there again? Uh, the other plant is called iboga. And actually both plants are used quite frequently all around the world now for the treatment of addiction. Um, there's actually you know many centers now that have kind of opened up in various parts of the world. Um, you can go and, and use ayahuasca or iboga in, in more like clinical settings uh, for the treatment of addiction. It's, it's incredibly good at getting you to sort of like it just sort of rings you by the neck and is like knock knock it off to any stupid self-destructive behaviors you have going on. Wow, that I have to give that a try. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind. It's kind, and it has a good sense of humor too. So it's you know, it's a really it's a beautiful experience. Um, speaking about the experiences, uh, what what were some of the personal experiences that you had with mm-hmm. ayahuasca? Well, it's uh, you know, immediately it's hard to answer because I've had several hundred now. So yeah. this has become you know a path for me, a, a practice of sorts. Um, I think some of my first very personal experiences were, um, you know, in what I wrote my book about, why I called the book The Gospel of an Ayahuasca Vision Quest and, and Fishers of Men. Um, it's really because my first visions were, um, you know, completely deconstructing the, the punitive sort of patriarchal sky god archetype that um, I had, you know, grown up with and watched my parents struggle with as people who, you know, my mom was grew up Catholic, my dad grew up in sort of a 
sort of a free Methodist slash Calvinist environment. So both of them were inundated by um, a version of God that they really tried to come to grips with during the 1960s and 70s as they were coming of age. And they went into the ministry, I think, as I've understood it, as, as sort of like a reformers. Um, and some of the reformative attitudes that they had were shaped by psychedelics in the 60s and bands like the Beatles and the Beach Boys. And, yeah. and yet they still really love Jesus, you know. So for me, it was like sorting out a lot of mixed up religious baggage in my first ceremonies. And specifically, um, you know, through some, some very very powerful and emotive uh, visions of, of Jesus and, and other Christian archetypes like archangels and the Virgin Mary and um, and even saying these things, it sounds cheesy. You, you simply can't describe, even by naming these things, what it's like to, to have these, these kinds of visions with them, you know? Uh, I got a lot of questions for you because like Adam had said, uh, it's always been a Back in the back of my mind, if I ever have some money put together someday, to uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, Blue Morpho in Peru. <laughs> yeah, that's that's where I first went. Um, Blue Morpho oh, wow. was the first uh, first lodge that I ever went to. Um, it was actually it was it was right after right before I can't remember. It was like within a month of the time that Kira Salak went down and had this amazing experience. Of course, she's she's a well-known journalist who ended up writing a very uh, pivotal uh, article for the whole field of ayahuasca shamanism and ayahuasca tourism to South America. She wrote this article for National Geographic called To Hell and Back, uh, something like that. And um, that was an experience that she had with Hamilton and um, Al- Alberto and Julio, who were Alberto and Julio are Hamilton's teachers. Hamilton's this young guy, he's like an Aries, super adventurous entrepreneur and, and really smart and, and kind of bold character. And, um, you know, I went down there and had these experiences um, with him and, and his teachers over the course of my first several times down there. And um, it was just sort of phenomenal because it was, it was at this very time that Ayahuasca was like, you know, sort of breaking headlines in these big magazines and then Blue Morphos at the head of that, and mm-hmm. so I was there before the the big lodge got built. Uh, when it was back, when the first lodge was like back, you know, twenty four hours uh, up river, and and it was way back there. And of course now it's like on the outskirts of the city, and the lodge has been built up, and that's all good. That's that's fine, but it's just it's, it's been fascinating to watch the whole thing, um, you know, develop from the beginning. So, but yeah, sh- short answers. Yes, I know Blue Morpho. <laughs> um. I, a couple of those names that you just mentioned sound familiar, especially Julio. I think he was in the documentary uh, Metamorphosis. That's right. Um, yeah, I, I'm. You know, Alberto was in that documentary. Julio passed away, I think, before the documentary was shot. Oh, okay. All right. Go ahead, Adam. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll ask some more questions. In a <laughs> well, you you talked about uh, you know when you saw. Uh, when you saw Jesus, and that's a pretty, um, it's a pretty interesting part of the book, uh, interesting section. Uh, I mean, when you saw him, when you or you met him, you had that encounter. How did he differ from what you were brought up to believe about him? Well, uh, in a couple of ways. One, and I mean, this is, and I, I, I say this not to like be sensationalist, right? But to 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 really the end effect being to ground the character of Jesus. Yeah. Um, 
and and but the first thing was that that I recognized was that this person was um a, a, a not not like fully enlightened like there's some terminal state that you reach where it's just over and done or something but this this was like it was like meeting an alien um and I don't mean alien in some kind of movie you know creepy whatever I, I mean sure it was as though uh, I was encountering a being who was human, but who, within the human form, um, was at a, a sort of vibrational level of peace and love and power that um, was was truly otherworldly and immediately made me feel like the cosmos was just completely infinite. Um, and and that was what was you know probably the most powerful thing before there were any there was any kind of interaction on a more personal level was just the presence of this being who um, made me realize that, you know, I think we have a really, even though we're like, a, a lot of us have kind of evolved and we're like, you know, I think the cosmos is a pretty big place and there's probably aliens out there and there's probably other life forms or whatever. I, I don't think that we truly grasp, even with that kind of openness, the, the uh, you know, the sort of infinitude that we're, that we're dealing with here, <laughs> you know, so it's like, um, this vision, first and foremost, just just ratched that open for me. It was like, wow, I'm living in the infinite, and this is this this person is something like a really well seasoned, incredibly elevated master of traveling and being sort of in in a very deep state of complete union um, with this universe and with God, if God can be called the universe, or maybe maybe transcendent to it. I don't know, and I'm not sure it even really matters. It was just that powerful. And and then I think the second thing that came in, you know, after that was just the the gut level response of feeling that I wasn't worthy. And there's a story, you know, that goes goes with that in the actual actual vision, but you know, the short of it was that in in the presence of what had happened originally was I was laying on a mattress and I a cup of I knocked a cup of water over. And um so, you know, I, my arm basically went into the water and I was, you know, drifting into a trance with my arm in the water and it suddenly felt as though the entire room was uh, surrounded with these sort of like pillars, like um, like Greek columns and there were actual um, big huge poles in the room that helped to create that that part of the effect, kind of like when you're dreaming, um, you know, if you're, if you're touching water, you might see a waterfall or something. It was it had that kind of a presence, but then within the domain that was created through that sort of visceral, um, you know, and, and effect, um, you know, then I saw Jesus walking on water, and and it was, and then this this feeling that I just described was there, and then after that, the the, the basic of what happened was that I felt incredibly unworthy and very far from the power and presence and whatever. That, that Jesus was carrying or emanating. And, um, and in that response, there was a teaching. And the teaching was about, it's that level of reactiveness that we have, or that, it's that, that tendency to react when we see something great, when we feel something great, to suddenly stop identifying with it and step into a comparison. And when we stop identifying with love, we step out of love. 
Like when we make a comparison and say, oh, I am not that love or I am not that Jesus or I am not that whatever. And we isolate ourselves and we essentially cut ourselves off. And so what I realized was that there was, you know, in, in that vision, then there was a deep sense of like how guilt and ashamedness is something that we inflict upon ourselves that essentially cuts us off from the power of Christ consciousness or the power of Buddha consciousness or the power of love or the, the vastness, uh, the mystery of the cosmos. And that all we really have to do is let go of that reactive tendency to compare ourselves to love. And, and so that was like an immensely powerful teaching. It made me vomit. Um, it it, it, it put, propelled me through an entire sequence of, of purging, which is a part of an ayahuasca ceremony too, where you'll your body will start to sort of psychosomatically release or act out the, the degree to which a pattern of self-destruction is entrenched within the body. And then it starts to release that pattern through the process of the vision. And um, th so as that was happening, um, you know, it was just a teaching to me of like, you know, be, be like me, identify with me, um, don't, and, and that's what it means to have Jesus in your heart. Um, and, and that was like, that was like, you know, Jesus and Christianity 5.0 just instantly uploaded into, into my framework, you know? <laughs> that's great. As I understand it, uh, the purging can take uh, many different forms, but it's not just vomiting. It can be any Right, sometimes they dry heave, too. Uh, which I believe that's happened to you, Adam, dry heaving. Say that again? Like uh, dry heaving is a, another oh. form of purging. Oh, yeah, gosh. You, I mean, you know, I, I've just purged <coughs> like every possible way that there is to purge. You know, it's, um, you know, barfing, crying, going out the bottom, laughing, sighing, burping, hiccuping, shaking, thrashing, mm -hmm. kicking, trying, you know. And some of it can get pretty dark. Um, yeah. and sometimes people have to get restrained. Um, and and or brought in and held under water to help cool down the effects because um, this is a, a lot of the times just completely shattering people's um, psyche and uh, because the, the the power of what you're seeing and going through is not just a teaching in some abstract intellectual way these things that these teachings appear in contrast generally speaking to um, things that we have living inside of us and this is where I started getting interested in astrology because it was quite clearly the case through my experiences that these were um, karmic these are things that came down through my family line these are things that came down through culture and history and also it, it's not far-fetched at all when you're having these experiences um, to feel the presence of having been human before and whether that's genetics or something that lives inside of us or literal past lives, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure it matters. But you feel that those things are so real and so you, you want to just, you know, you want to discover more because there is a sort of a sacred science at play. Um, although it can be a red, real red herring to like want to come away from an ayahuasca experience and try to figure things out. But, but, but I mean, in general, yeah, you can purge in any number of ways, and it's not even how you purge. It, you know, it's just that the specific way in which you purged is oftentimes just unspeakably and ironically bound up with the thing itself that you're purging. You know, so a lot of times people with, um, you know, 
real serious tendencies, right? Like the, the way that they're going to come out is going to be to like, you know, like they're, they're, oh, like they're sounding like a bear who's trying to fight against something because they have this serious disposition. And then after a while, um, it just breaks open and the person can't stop laughing for an hour, you know, <laughs> and, and like that is for that person just liberating until they get to the point where that, that liberation of laughter from this enclosed, crystallized, serious attitude toward life is then, uh, is then frightening. They realize how deep laughter has been buried, and after an hour of laughing, they're they're absolutely terrified by how much how deep the laughter goes, and so they'll they'll vomit because they have to get over the fact that fear was driving seriousness from the beginning, right? So it can be like there's any number of ways that these things um, act act themselves out, and you can always kind of sense with it a kind of um, like a, a little bit of a physics or a logic at, at play. Um, and, and that's what that's what makes the experience, um, I think, also like something that could, could possibly be of huge beneficial interest to um, medical doctors and, and therapists and psychiatrists. Um, so, I, you know, I personally hope there's more research done. You know, uh, Adam, would you say that uh, one experience would permanently make an impact on your life and the way you lived afterward, or? Would you say it's more of like I need to go back and do this again to kind of um, reassert what I've learned, what I learned the first time? Well, <coughs> that's a great question, and uh, you know, the way that I, I typically answer that that question because it's I think it's a perennial one that we ask not just of ayahuasca, right? But like when I was a kid, you know, my dad was a preacher, and I'd go to youth group. And, like, the same kids were going up to altar calls to get saved every Wednesday. Like, what happened from last week to this week that <laughs> Jesus is, like, no longer your friend or whatever, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that the, as I have grown older, I've, what I've come to understand is that, um, you know, baptism, for example, the concept of baptism or communion, these things are, to my mind, they're really, in some ways, the exact same gesture. Um, they are a, a recommitting of oneself, um, to, to uh, you know to, to the way to, to, to the Tao to God to, to Christ to the Buddha whatever um, and people need to do them again and again and again as often as the sun rises you, you know it's a it's a daily part of our life to uh, renew the practice of our faith because faith in my in my estimation faith is, is a journey and faith is a practice um, so in, in that regard uh, people that drink ayahuasca, uh, if they go looking for for something that's going to like cure them, I mean, it's it's undeniable that ayahuasca compared to many other things, and this is a fair comparison that I I don't feel bad to make, is that ayahuasca can can crack you open in a way that not a lot of things can, and and it has to be used very respectfully as a result because the other thing is that because it cracks you open like not a lot of other things can, there's also a temptation to come back from an experience like that hugely self-righteous. Um, hmm. Right? Because, you know, it's like, it's like imagine that you could inject uh, a year's worth of Pentecostal, very personal Pentecostal experiences into, uh, you know, into six hours, right? Mm -hmm. And, and um, you may come off from that, that like a little bit of a firebrand, you know? So um, I think that's what I've noticed the most is that people who go in with the idea that it's going to blow them apart in this and just, just totally give them the answers, uh, they come back thinking that they have the answers. 
And the practice is not about having answers. That you know, it's 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 in my you know in my estimation, it, it's about learning to to walk a path daily with uh, you know integrity. So, you know, people come back from ayahuasca, and I think for a lot of people it becomes a path. Uh, they'll drink in four or five ceremonies. They'll come home with maybe in another year or two they'll go down and drink again, and it becomes a sort of um, it's like it's like um, a strange portal through which you can um, just just enter into a deep communion with with spirit. And as you do that, you you know you can. It's like getting your oil changed in your car. You know, to use a really crappy mechanical <laughs> metaphor. So I mean, people use it like that. I think it's I think it's wonderful. You have to be careful. There's like a whole tourism industry that's built around ayahuasca yeah. now, nowadays. You know, people have people have died um, because there's there's people that are starting to more people think of it like the answer the more that uh, people try to make money on it and and that results in crappy shamanism which results in you know people getting overdosed or the brew not being um, served or cooked correctly or or whatever so it's a, it's a complex topic myself I for me it's very important to take time away from spiritual practice and to just be a human you know and and then to go back to spiritual practice and then to go back to being human. It's like a dance that I, I personally have to do. And I, I always tell people to go and just do you know, do ayahuasca, like, um, you know, have, maybe have that attitude will help. Wow. Now, Adam, in your book, um, you pretty much go through your entire life story. Um, and you, you talk about the way you were before you had these, these experiences, that you had uh, pro- issues with drug addiction, um, sexual addiction, those, those type of things. And uh, now after you've had these experiences with ayahuasca, that is completely out of your life. It's like your, your wiring has just, has just been changed. Right. Yeah, that's. Um, I mean, it's a process. So it's like it, again, it didn't happen overnight. There were yeah. there were a few minor setbacks, but I mean minor. And that's a great that's a great thing about ayahuasca is that I mean in ter- terms of the substances and the addictions and whatnot. Um, you know, e- ego issues they, they they take a little bit longer. You know, but but the the actual substance addictions and the sex you know sexual addictions those things got cleaned up pretty pretty quickly. Um, well, one thing that. That really, um, it just changed the. I mean, I heard a, a shaman in South America say that, um, you know, you, you you need to be careful when you come back from an ayahuasca ceremony um, in in South America, going back to the United States, uh, that you have time and space to reintegrate slowly because ayahuasca is is like a form of brain surgery almost. I mean, it's it's a very uh, delicate, you know, and sensitive process, and and what you go through is. Um, you know, I mean, you're, it's just it's you, you really are getting into the wiring, hard, hardcore karmic wiring, and also physiological stuff. So, um, you know, for me, one of the instant things that I realized when I came back, which is in keeping with almost, <coughs> I think the great some of the great wisdom traditions in our planet, certainly uh, certainly Taoism and, and Eastern Chinese medicine, um, which is this idea that um, the body is. Uh, especially men's bodies are are often very depleted um, by by ejaculation or by or you know by ejaculatory orgasm, and uh, so 
one of the things that just became very obvious to me afterwards, because ayahuasca, in a, in a sense, um, sensitizes a lot of people um, to, to the, the deeper levels of, of subtle feeling that go along with phenomenal reality, like drinking a beer or like, you know, having sex or, or whatever. And, um, it, you know, for a long time, it was, I, I, my body had had too much of all of those things. And so I could not do anything. Like I, I was celibate for a number of years, no, you know, and basically no, no women, no sex sure. at all. And, and, you know, no masturbation either, just totally celibate. And it didn't feel restrictive. You know, there's, it can, but there's, um, you know, for me, it was as though I was just like trying to remember what it's like to not be someone who is triggered to get off by sensory data coming in. And, um, as that developed, you know, a lot of other things were developing, you know, sensitivity to alcohol was higher than ever, so I couldn't drink alcohol. Sensitivity to caffeine, higher than ever, I couldn't have caffeine. A lot of things like that were happening for me, but it was essentially a part of getting sober. Um, but, but that's a process for me that took, you know, two, three years. Um, not not of, and I don't mean of going back and forth, I mean literally of, of being able to clean and feel pure and strong in my body to, to sort of revitalize my organs and, and stuff like that so then you know nowadays I live with a lot of moderation so I still practice celibacy but uh, you know it's a sort of tantric form of celibacy where I'll have intercourse um, with, with you know with my girlfriend but I, I will um, abstain from ejaculations and orgasms and that's a that's a practice that I can't you can't prescribe to people you can't prescribe it because any practice, in my opinion, spiritual practice, is only something that you can really come to when you are, it's a big smile and a big yes. It's like, yeah, I'm ready for this. Everyone knows that when you're smoking cigarettes, too. You get to this point where you're like, all right, I can't smoke cigarettes anymore. I'm not liking this. You know, it's yeah. not working for me. And it's like there's a willingness that, that you know what you're going to do is going to feel good, and it does feel good, and so you do it. So that's how these practices came along to me, you know, a gradual sort of reprogramming of a lot of different lifestyle behaviors and patterns, but again, not in a prescriptive way, in a gradually getting acclimated to what I was feeling and what actually felt good and what didn't. Yeah, it, it works for you, like the celibacy and such, but it's not something that you would necessarily recommend for someone else unless they came to that realization themselves. Right. That's I mean, what you're saying? Yeah, it's sort of like, you know, there, there's two lines of, of thinking about it. There's one that says, meditate because people tell you to, and it's good for you, and you should do it. And, yeah. you know, if you go that way, you can find out that you love meditation, that it's great for you, and that people were right, and that you were maybe resistant or rebellious to it, and you're glad you gave it a shot. That's one way to get there. Um, it doesn't help when you're going that way to have people beat you over the head saying, you know, with fear or judgment or something like that. On the other hand, a fool who persists in his folly becomes wise. And I think that that's more often, especially in America, where you know our, our society is not set up to be as much a community as it is a community that's set up to protect individuals. Um, that, that, kind of, that kind of atmosphere isn't conducive to communal teachings from elders who say, hey, this really worked for me. There's, there's not enough trust. In, in community in our in our culture in my opinion for those for something like hey tr you know 
try tantric orgasm free sexuality and see if that changes how quickly you get burnt out on your girlfriend or you know what I mean um, yeah. and people will say well you know I don't want to do that because that sounds religious that sounds whatever and they're right it, it probably does sound that way and feel that way to them and so the fool who persists in his folly becomes wise eventually what I've noticed is that there are certain types of people and not everyone is like this but there are certain types of people who will then go and they'll they will very naturally as they're progressing on whatever path they're they're walking down they will um they'll say you know what i'm realizing that like sex is this violent sort of loop of insatiable lust for me and i need to try something different and that will be the moment at which they try something different nothing i say is gonna you know mean anything and that's as it should be because that's it, it only makes sense when it comes through that kind of moment and and so and it could be something different too it could be something that's very specific to what that individual needs to feel a healthy balance you know right but oh, yes. is, oh no go ahead i was gonna say but ayahuasca is something more than it teaches you what to do and what not to do. it teaches it really helps you attune you know to to where your own center point is it, it helps you locate your own internal compass um, that, that that would be my opinion on it. You mentioned um, in the book, too, I believe it's around page uh, 160 in the book, uh, you talk about a dark experience that you had. And it's kind of towards the end, I, th- I think towards the end of your time there um, at the lodge. And you had an experience where you saw a reptilian kind of creature you had basically what is apocalyptic visions. Um, you know, how, how did you, are UFOs going through your body? How did you, um, how did you interpret that? What, what, what did that mean? Right. Well, this is, this is actually, I think, a, a really great, um, really great point in, in the book. And one of the parts that was um, definitely one of the more difficult parts to write because, yeah. you know, at the, at the time, it was still really fresh, and, and so I think it did some really good writing around that, um, which was also very healing. The, so the, there, there was, you know, a, a couple, I mean, God, at this point, you know, uh, at least, you know, a quarter of my experiences with ayahuasca have been, um, you know, just hell-raising. Um, and one of the reasons for that is... Also, well, because hell and suffering exist. I mean, I don't believe they exist in an eternal sense, mm-hmm. um, but I, I, there are regions and dimensions of hell and, and suffering and, and great uh, trauma and, and darkness and, and even evil, I don't mind saying that word, um, that exist. And um, those spaces are spaces that we allow into us through, oftentimes through what we entertain. Through, through what we allow to come into our field, through what we say yes to, um, and so or what we don't say no to is maybe a better way of putting it. And so, um, so uh, at any rate, I had you know some experiences, you know, incredibly apocalyptic, and um, and you know all different kinds of sort of. It was very invasive. Like the the, the, the experience I write about in the book was one that was. was very dark, very invasive, very sort of um, evil. And uh, that experience was, for me, what that was related to was the subject of alienation. And it was very interesting because the actual words alien and um, alien and nation kept 
repeating themselves as separate words and as one word back and forth through many kind of parts of that vision. Hmm. Um, and Interesting. Yeah, it was it was it was it was super fascinating. And one of the reasons that I I realized this is because okay. Well, to, to reference a book that I'm reading right now, it's really wonderful. This guy Ian McGillcrest, who wrote a book called The Master and His Emissary, the making of the, the split mind and the making of the Western world, or the divided brain and the making of the Western world, something like that. At any rate, in the book, he writes about the right and left hemisphere of the brain. And um, he basically suggests that the right hemisphere is, you know, related to the ground of being, which is essentially the presence the presence of the current moment and the, the complete stream, like a river of um, of constant change and movement that is the present, and that our right brain lives there, and its understanding of truth is in that movement, that constant, fluid, present movement. Um, the left hemisphere, on the other hand, which he believes is sort of running rampant in the world right now, is one that is built, in a sense, to um, stand stand up or out or above that fluid flow in a sort of detached way, scan the area, scan the, the surroundings, and, and get this attempt at trying to understand in a detached way why or how something is happening. And yet, um, what inevitably happens is the left brain will collapse back into the right brain. So that no matter what you do to try and rationalize about your experience, um, you will you will return to the fact that your rationalizing is merely another experience flowing through the current moment. Like okay. right. So essentially what he says is that the world we live in is um, trying its best to live through the left brain, which is a very detached, dissociated um, way of being that tries to rationalize its way through existence rather than, than identify with the flow of existence. And because of that, what we're doing is we're essentially in the sort of rationalistic mimicry mode. And we are most likely, what we're doing is we're, we're mimicking um, a, a mechanical left hemisphere view of reality. So we see things as very robotic. And what that does is it alienates us from the flow of life. It, by, by extension, because it alienates us from the flow of life, it literally puts us into touch with alien forms of life. Alien forms of life that are on the frequency of mechanistic. And those are evil. Those are dark. So, I mean, and this is what my vision was leading me to the, toward the conclusion of. So, that this mechanistic sort of dissociated worldview puts us into touch with other dark civilizations that don't see us as human, they see us as machines that they want to know how we work. So they, they may uh, abduct us or, or rape us or... <laughs> and these things come through a lot of different forms. Um, one thing you can think about is all of the, you know, there's various, of course, entire very interesting histories that Graham Hancock has on, on UFOs and on Earth and in ancient Mayan civilizations, all this... It wasn't really that for me, you know. It, for me, it was more of understanding that the alienation comes through what I give my attention to, and a lot of what I was giving my attention to were cliches. And cliches are mechanical, and what is mechanical is alien, and what is alien connects us with this dark mechanistic um, dimension. And within that dimension, there are beings that start coming into our consciousness, and that affects how we live. So. 
that the whole vision that night was essentially about me puking out a lot of things that were a part of mechanistic cultural cliches that were alienating me and exposing me to very dark energies. Dualism in the bicameral mind. Yeah, that's an, yeah, that's another yeah, it's another beautiful one. I, I love that. That book's very interesting. Adam, when you say aliens, um, you're not necessarily saying something that's from another planet. It's more like something from another dimension, something that's over on this world. Yeah, but, it, uh, but we don't it, see. I, it could be both. I mean, like I'm, I'm yeah. really open. I'm, after all these things that I've seen, I feel just tremendously open. You know, like, like I can honestly say that, like, you know, at this point, if we were, if it were to to be disclosed that you know alien life had been discovered by the government in, in physical forms and spaceships and things like that, I wouldn't be in the least surprised. Um, I, I mean, I would probably be like amazed, but I wouldn't be like, oh my god, I can't believe it. Um, you know, but. I'm more interested in the idea that um, be, because I've also seen that there are entities that exist in 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 disembodied or not not disembodied but in forms that are not material or of the same density as our own, like angels and spirits and so forth. And in the, those spaces, there are dark ones too. And and so I'm fascinated by the idea of you know, alien influence in, in a similar way as, as uh, you know, sort of classic Christian demonic influence. But you could also think of aliens as angels. Like, I, I think alien is just um, one word that we use for a lot of different things. Yeah, I would say that there's a... I would say that there's a very fine distinction between the two. Um, what could be angels to someone else could be an alien. What could be an alien to someone else could be an angel or a demon. Um, I say it's 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 like kind of a, a matter of, of perspective, right? I, I yeah, I, I tend I tend to agree with that, you know. And and um, I'm also not totally. I mean, you know, sometimes I feel like literalizing all of this stuff, and then you know, other times I feel really like close to some of the opinions of like Carl Jung, just that that you know, spirits are like um, our experience of the spirits, well, or or the bicameral mind, right? That just the idea that some of these entities are, um, are are feel incarnate to us because of the difficulty that we have of understanding the the different hemisphere relations of the brain and, and the unconscious. Yeah, and and so some of these things truly just come from within us. You know, I would say that in the alien abduction experience, which is something I've studied a lot, that it seems to me personally that it is an experience that is inward and not outward in other words that it's not really aliens coming down in nuts and bolts uh, spaceship that it's something that is in the mind of the person that's being abducted however it's not necessarily a uh, an unreal experience mm -hmm. right. but these are real things that are doing it but it's not necessarily uh, physical Right, you know, and and that's something McGilchrist says in this this new book he wrote about yeah. the brain. He, he says essentially that a lot of schizophrenics and their um, their some of the breaks that they experience could be because of trauma or or like you know lesions or something on on one hemisphere of the brain versus the other. That um, and, and and I don't think he wants to reduce the experience to a material phenomenon, but I think sure. that what he wants to do is say, um, you know, look at the way in which this phenomenon 
is internal, as you're saying. You mentioned schizophrenics, and I was going to get to that about uh, how, um, at a certain point, you had actually worked with schizophrenics in a hospital. And yes. uh, how did your experiences with ayahuasca? How did that help you to to deal with with uh, people with schizophrenia? Right. It, it was um, it was very complex because I was working a couple of things. I was working for the Franciscans, yeah. a, a Franciscan residence home. So it wasn't a hospital. It was like a, it was like a residential uh, assisted sort of living situation. Okay. And, um, and so I had the I had the dynamics of the Catholic Church, um, and and that bureaucracy, as well as the dynamics of, you know, the, the state and you know, city of New York and the social system, um, and and then I had the schizophrenics themselves that I was friends with and worked with. And at the exact same time, um, I was publishing a book about ayahuasca and drinking a lot of ayahuasca. And so it was, I mean, um, it was, first thing is it was incredibly stressful, (laughs) you know. Not to interrupt, Adam, but you weren't actually, at that time, you weren't actually going to Peru. You were doing the ayahuasca in New York. Is that, that's correct? Right. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's right. Wow. So, um, and that's a whole different story. I don't really want to go into that, but, but yeah, so it was very intense time and the, the experiences, you know, first and foremost were quite clearly, um, you know, I was able to have a kind of interior look at the phenomenon of what people were going through and to be able to understand it in a, in a very, um, in a way that a lot of other my coworkers, except for some of them who had been there for a very long time, could understand, um, and and you know, not that's not to brag or anything. I just purely attribute it to the to the nature of the ayahuasca work. Um, for example, uh, you know, schizophrenics will be stabilized by a cocktail of, of drugs, most of which are are um, you know have a, have a huge array of devastating side effects. Yeah, and. Um, so they're handicapped by the side effects. They're also the diagnosis is, a, you know, is a kind of a garbage diagnosis a lot of the times. People aren't even sure what schizophrenia is. I mean, that's the doctors that I worked with, you know, and and at the same time, they're schizoaffective, meaning they may also be bipolar or have an, any number of other different sort of behavioral things going on. But at any rate, um, what I would notice would be they, they'll decomp. Um, a lot of schizophrenics will go through periods of time where they'll be stable because of the meds, but then something will happen, and it will they will decompensate. They will they will kind of have a, a break, and then they'll have to be hospitalized. Their meds will have to be shifted up, changed something, and then there's this period where they're pretty crazy for a while, and then they come back into a normalization. And that pattern is obviously terrifying to watch. I mean, we had people, you know, there's a, there's a guy jumped out a window while I was there. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff that you see that's that's pretty gnarly. I mean, I didn't see yeah. him jump out the window, but that that kind of stuff is, is pretty gnarly, and it's very traumatizing because you recognize the position that they're in, having been in positions like that myself in the Amazon in these horrifying experiences or, you know, that same work week, work week while I might have gone to a ceremony. And you understand where the experience is coming from, and what you see is 
you know, I don't want to simplify it, but in some regards, what you see is the complete inadequacy of the medical and social and religious systems uh, uh, to be able to accurately understand what is even happening. Um, and, you know, what, what a decomp is, what the world looks like from the, the schizophrenic point of view. And um, I don't say, again, I don't want to simplify, say, oh, when you drink ayahuasca, it's like becoming a schizophrenic, but yeah. it gives you a certain kind of insight and it also gives you an insight into what is is the trigger for the decomp. So a lot of the times, like for example, you'll they'll you know someone will come up with a great idea to try and make someone zip up his pants because he, his pants his flies always down, and you know you'll tell him to and he he won't do it or he won't respond, and then you'll bug him about it again and you'll bug it about him again day after day, and um, then finally you know he'll zip up his pants. And you'll, you know, cheer him on like he's a little boy who's just accomplished something. And then, you know, he's he's in the hospital. And it's like, you know, and, but the thing is, is that nobody, a lot of the times in those cases, three quarters of the staff are not able to sense what it was that triggered him. You yeah. know, and, and you can see it's the small little thing that's a part of his routine or that's a part of, you know, the way that this person um, keeps sanity together. And what you realize in the uh, ayahuasca experience is very similar. Um, sanity is something that we all keep together, a lot of us mostly through a lot of very elaborate illusions and lies. And once those things, which are much more complex for those of us who aren't schizophrenic, once those things are penetrated, um, we too will lose our shit, you know, but we have better support systems and, you know, our, our, our degree of trauma and the break we experience is not going to be anywhere as bad. I mean, these are a lot of people who, became homeless and then were raped in parks or set on fire or I mean this is really dark stuff so you know the way that we can reassemble the world after a break into another fancy um, another sort of sometimes another fancy lie is uh, it, you know it, it also makes you realize that, that sometimes the process of what someone is going through as a schizophrenic may be spiritually much more profound than what sober people are going through in terms of you know, why is this person where they're at karmically in this lifetime? It, it gives you a deep respect because after two hours of going through hell, you imagine yeah. what would two weeks of a decompensation be like, you know? Um, what is this person learning? What are they going through? What are they maybe burning off karmically? A lot of different questions come in. and I guess, you know, at the end of the day, it's just, it creates a deep level of compassion and empathy to work with people like this. And, and also it just takes away a lot of presumption that we have about, about sickness, I think. Uh, all right. I, I got another couple more for you. Um, I, I heard, I heard, uh, I think on a documentary that some people felt like their ayahuasca experiences got easier the more they did. And then some people felt like it was just as intense every single time. Uh, for you, was it? Did it uh, get easier, or did it stay just as intense? It's sort of like the Zen, you know, the Zen teaching. I think it is um, that 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 once a mountain is a mountain, and then a mountain is a hill, and then again it's a mountain. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for me, it it, it has to do with um, seasons of growth and change. Um, so you know, it's just. To me now, I almost look at it like, oh, you know, what was this winter like? You know, what was this summer like? And you kind of get a feel for um, the specificity of what the waves are like or what the weather was like on a certain day or something, you know. And and for me, ayahuasca is a lot like that. 
I've detached from the whole idea of whether or not it gets easier because if you want it to be easier, first of all, it's probably going to get harder. And, and then if you, you know, if you take stock, you know, if you, if you start kind of counting your blessings or something like, Oh, I'm, I'm getting better at this or something like, mm-hmm. um, you know, generally speaking, when I've taken that kind of attitude, I just get knocked on my butt again. So right. you, you end up sort of staying open to whatever happens. Um, and, you know, like I said, you know, I was kind of, kind of going back to the schizophrenic example. And you find ways of staying sane through the experience. Um, and they're very, you know, like something that's very simple that, that for me was a big deal for a while during ayahuasca practice was prayer beads. Throughout the whole night, no matter what, I would hold my prayer beads. And even though I would go through absolute hell, there would be these moments where I would realize that I still have my prayer beads in my hand. And when you come back and you look at the prayer beads, you're like, I get it. I get thousands of years of why people have held on to these things. You know, it, it doesn't really matter what kind of prayer beads they are or anything like that. It could, you know, it could be a rock. I don't, I don't know. But mm-hmm. I, I, I guess the point is that, um, you know, more and more, I think what the practice builds in you is um, a sort of peace that passes understanding, to, to use a Christian phrase. You know, it, it's like you're you're able to be with really raucous experiences and, and really blissful ones, but not really get attached to either. So it's, it's sort of Buddhist in that way. Wow. Okay. Uh, my other question, um, taking away uh, the plane tickets, all, all the extra expenses and everything else, could you give me an approximate cost of what it would be to go to one of these resorts? Yeah, well, that's unfortunate because when I first went, it was it was cheap. I mean, relatively cheap compared to what yeah. it probably is today. Right. I mean, um, you know, when I first <coughs> went, it probably co- cost me somewhere between fifteen hundred and two thousand dollars for everything. Wow. Um, you know, and that was it. Um, and now you're going to spend probably about fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars at the lodge. Um, if you're going to stay for like a 10 day, you know, full on mm-hmm. retreat. Um, if you go, there's some places that are going to be more like 120, 130 bucks a night. Um, you know, and those, there's some good places that are like in that range. So maybe you go for five or six nights you spend five or $600. Um, and then, you know, your airfare is probably going to be about a grand and, right. and then you've got your food and everything, which isn't much. And, you know, you can get away with the trip for, I would imagine still 1500 to $2,000, but you know, for, for some of the more, like, um, I think some of the places that are, are like Blue Morpho, you know, is one is one lodge. Uh, although, you know, I, so I wouldn't, I'm not in the business of recommending lodges anymore because there's, they all have their drama. But, right, yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, any, any of the lodges down there that, you know, probably going to be like 15 to 2,000 nowadays for, for the ones that are going to have like a very nice structured... Uh, experience with lots of things you can do and jungle hikes and you know uh, the, m- more touristy but there are places that are simpler um, that are that are also very reputable Spirit of the Anaconda is one that um, I've drank at that I, I really appreciated uh, Temp- Temple of the Way of Light um, that's another one that, that I a lot of a lot of good people I know enjoy that lodge okay so Adam um what are you doing now? What is it? Uh, what's in What's in the future for you? And what's in the future for you? Um, 
Well, uh, right now, what I'm really doing a lot of is um, obviously astrology. That's my that's my kind of love. That's what grew for me out of this experience, other than creative writing, which I said I was in graduate school at the time for creative writing. But since then, really, um, what's grown out of the experience for me has, you know, gradually what I started actually sort of apprenticing myself to during ayahuasca ceremonies was the uh, the planetary intelligence and divination. So the I Ching and um, astrology in particular came for me from these experiences. And uh, I just threw myself into the, to the study of these things and I started a um, kind of a community study group in 2000 by uh, 2011 had turned into uh, a full-on uh, year-long certification course for counseling astrologers. So now I have a full-time practice. I, I see clients all year round, and um, as you speak, you know, I speak at places, you know, semi-regularly. And writing a new writing a new book about um, about psychedelics and mysticism, um, which I'm really excited about. And uh, and I teach a lot of students. I have 27. 27 astrology students right now, so it's a full plate. Oh, wow. And this next book, is it going to be more, uh, it's not, is it going to be more of like a personal reflection as the last one was, or is this more of kind of a, an exploration, information? Yeah, no, this one's personal as well. Um, okay. I mean, I, I like to really like, um, you know, the, the, when I was in my MFA program in creative writing, I studied memoir, and what I really appreciate are people who know how to tell their story like their life story or some aspect or perspective of their life um in a way that that you know feels like you're you're watching a very interesting movie or it's um it engages you like fiction rather than um you know rather than like straight up con- you know confessional like and then when i was you know like chunk in the goonies like and then i was seven i in the movie theater and <laughs> I, I got it. So that 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 kind of style is is what sure. I um is what like, what I'm into. I got to tell you, I um I finished your book today, as I told you before, and uh, I don't think I've read a more brutally honest book. The things that you recount in there about your your story. I, I'm not sure I could ever put anything like that to <laughs> in my own life on into paper. So I, I really commend you for your bravery and courage for doing that. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I look at, at it. You know, there, there are days when I, I look at the entire project and I think, how selfish for someone to sit there and, you know, talk about themselves and their life and all these gory details. And then there's other times where I, I get feedback like what you said or, you know, um, I had uh, a man uh, email me last fall that I've become friends with who uh, he went and drank ayahuasca as a result of reading my book and, you know, he got sober. He was an alcoholic for more than a decade and got sober and, and you know, there was something for him about the bravery of self-disclosure in the book that, that helped him step forward and those are the things I, I I like to hear, but you know it's it's a back and forth thing. As a memoir writer, you always kind of wonder if you're navel gazing or if you're if you're being kind of self obsessed, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I like the way that you did it. I like the way that you um, you 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 switched back and forth from your life to um, 
your experiences with ayahuasca. So it, 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 it moved very well, and it's a very well-written book, too. Thank you. I, yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Luke, is there anything you want to ask? Or? Um, I'm sure I could come up with some more questions. I think you, I, can. <laughs> <laughs> you know, being, being that I am so interested in, in going down there someday, you know, if I ever get that kind of money and, and going through the whole experience because, you know, there's definitely some things that I would like to correct. <laughs> uh Alcohol is being one of them, I'd say, even though I'm well, not. Well, you know. Go ahead. No, that yeah, that's that's. I mean, I I was like I say to people a lot, you know, there's um, especially if you if you hang out with the Evolver communities, if you're familiar with the Evolver networks and the Evolver meetup groups, there are um, you know, there are shamans that come um, to the United States and travel that are legitimate and good and. Um, you know, that network is the closest I know of to a hookup in the means of just there's a lot of good people who do good shamanic work in the United States and know of where to go to drink ayahuasca that you might connect with. But that's not to say that, you know, Evolver has no connection with it. It's just that those, those, right. those types of groups, you know, it's one that I know of where people run in those kind of circles. So. That, that might be an option for you too because it's not you know some it's, there's nothing wrong with uh, a ceremony happening in the United States you'd be surprised if you know if you found out how many different interesting um, people you know high profile people are, are drinking ayahuasca regularly in the United States so no, I'm sure it's, I'm it's, sure of it <laughs> it's you know it's there's nothing wrong with it at the same time it's like I if I had to recommend to anyone I would say if you can go to the Amazon first you know so you really have the the authentic flavor of the experience. Full, that, full experience. That's I think um, genuine. What's his name? Jo- Joe Rogan is a big proponent of it. The, uh, the yeah, comedian. He's, he's quite. He's quite a character. I think he's. Uh, I, I'm really thankful for just his his voice out there. Yeah. Well, Adam, uh, tell before we let you go, tell us uh, uh, where people can get your book and um, where they can get in touch with you and your website. Oh, yeah, right on. Um, so my book is Fishers of Men, The Gospel of an Ayahuasca Vision Quest. It was published by Tarcher Penguin in 2010. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Um, that's the easiest way. Um, you know, it's a tough thing. I'm always like, buy it new on Amazon because that helps my sales. But then, uh, you know, I also don't want used business people to go out. So I'm like, well, go to the used bookstore and get it. It doesn't really matter. You can get it there. You can go to Amazon or um, Barnes & Noble or stuff like that. And if people want to get a hold of me, um, they want to, you know, do an astrology reading, or um, which is just a fantastic way to really probe some of these deep places. And I, I, I truly think I, that one of the things that makes Nightlight unique is an astrology school, and you know, my own practice. I really try to bring some of the the more piercing um, insights and um, and uh, and healing knowledge that that I've learned through these experiences into how I do astrology. Um, and there's a lot of other good astrologers out there who I think are starting to do similar things. So it's kind of a neat, neat time. You can check that out at nightlightastrology.com. It's N-I-G-H-T, like night, and then L-I-G-H-T, like light, astrology. Um, and the, the school's there, too, so if folks are interested in studying astrology and, um, and that, they can check that out. Otherwise, the readings are listed there as well. And then, you know, if folks are in the Maryland area or the D.C. area, our yoga studio is called Sky House Yoga. And you can check that out at skyhouseyoga.com. Excellent. Um, 
Adam, we'll have to get you back on to talk about astrology. I would love that. That'd that's be, like a whole other show. So that's great. Yeah, I'm, Any, I'm interested in that as well. That's that's a whole awesome conversation in and of itself for sure. Interesting. All right. Well, uh, stay in the line for us. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna go over here to uh, to break, and uh, we'll be right back on Conspiranormal. All right, we're back on Conspiranormal, Luke. I know that you really really appreciated that one. Shabang! So what do you think, man? Uh. Yeah, I mean, like, like I was just telling you before we came back, uh, he reminds me a lot of my brother, uh-huh. and he seems like he's done as much, if not more, research. I don't know. Well, I'll but, tell you, your brother's, you know, he's into some deep stuff, too. He's uh, a real deep thinker. He, you know? he's, uh, I guarantee you he's read most of the same books as he has. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I'm going to recommend the show to him immediately, too, after you post it, because he'll love it. He'll eat it up. Absolutely. So, what are your thoughts on ayahuasca now? Um, well, even more affirmed, right? Exactly. <laughs> if, uh, you know, I I told you I've, I actually have you know quite a bit of information on it because I did internet research and I've watched uh, three separate documentaries about it and all of these people, all these different people are talking about their experiences and stuff and yeah. how it worked for them and each individual took something different away from it and and uh, how I kind of view it from what it sounds like is like shrooms and weed combined <laughs> you know just uh, it sounds like it's, it's even more powerful well, well yeah exactly that's what I'm saying I mean, it sounds like it's the most powerful hallucinogenic drug in, in the world take. yeah right and there's and there's a whole long list of hallucinogenics out there in the world like you've got these tribes that uh, I forget what it's called a uh, puton or something like that you know where they blow it into the uh, cane poles into their face yeah. and it covers it coats their face in this powder and then they lick the poisonous frogs, the toxin gives them visions and <laughs> yeah. stuff like that. You know, so it's all over the world, but uh, ayahuasca definitely seems like a really good, well-rounded, balanced uh, aid in, yeah. in helping you have those visions and correct those insufficiencies and stuff with yourself. Well, the main reason I wanted to have Adam on was to, you know, for him to talk about his experiences. And I think it's important that... Uh, people understand um, and we did touch on this with him on the in the interview was how you know this goes into kind of the uh, the realm of the supernatural too mm-hmm. you know that there are these things that are you know that are kind of beyond our reality that kind of lurk right. on the other side of our reality and that when something like ayahuasca is taken or some other hallucinogenic drug we often uh, encounter these, right. these kind of beings. So, so that alone <clears throat> makes them very real, and it's in someone who sees yeah. more of like a two-dimensional um, outlook, just they're like, well, I, you know, the demon's not in front of me. I've never seen an apparition of a demon in front of me talking to me, because what is in your mind is just as real as what you're seeing physically. You know? Sure. And he make he makes that very like literally, uh, literarily, or however, whatever word for it, uh, uh, nicely put. You know, I can't speak the same way. Well, it seems to me that it's very possible that uh, ancient man uh, took these kind of drugs and had these same kind of experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, definitely kind of the, the cave paintings, the ancient cave paintings. Mm-hmm. They're all much more uh, stylized. So it seems to me that those kind of... The, these, this kind of thing is as old as human humanity Exactly. Itself. And it and just recently it's become a, a big deal, you know. 
Right. People are and even um, going to different things like uh, uh, what's it called? Sage's Brush. Uh, people people have been doing it in the, the past few years. They've just made it illegal. Uh, I forgot what it's called right now. What the salvia? Salvia, salvia, yeah, yeah. salvia. He actually yeah. talks about using salvia in his book. Did he do it too? Yeah, he's done it too. <laughs> yeah. He's a warrior, man. You know, <laughs> if you want to do that, all that stuff, more power to you. But for me, I don't know. I'd have yeah. to just. Well, I don't know it, if I'm ready to face all those demons yet. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I've felt like my entire life, um, you got to face it. And, and yeah. well, just just talking about like without any kind of drugs at all. Just say you're alone in your living room or whatever. There's nobody else in the house. There's no TV on. There's nothing to distract you. You're still gonna face them. All of those thoughts that were building and you've been ignoring because you're at work or you're doing something else to distract yourself. They're still gonna come up and you still have to face them. But it's like when you take the ayahuasca, just boom, like accelerated. Like there it is. Face it now. You know, get past it. And this is why people use stuff like alcohol and drugs, you know, that are, or sex or anything to kind of distract Just you as a distraction. From, from your, yeah. like, from the demons that you have in mm-hmm. you. Uh, <clears throat> he is a very, very interesting person. And like I said, I'd, I'd love to get him on and talk about astrology, which is something I don't really know anything about. But yeah. apparently you I, know I've, a little more something about it than I do. I've gotten into it a little bit more here in the recent years. And uh, it's it's really fascinating to me that uh, so many old timers will will stick by it, you know. Yeah. They're like, oh, I grow my crops on Wednesday nights on the on the fifteenth of every April, and you know, all these like the farmers' almanacs. Exactly. Yeah. All these specific times, and it's like, and, and the thing is, you know, a lot of people think that it's just for planting cycles and, and gardening and stuff and fishing, but really, it, it encompasses so much more. It encompasses. Uh, when to start a relationship, when to go look for a potential mate, uh, when to, um, things with your career, when to try to ask for a promotion, when would be a good time, you know, all of these things they used to believe were, uh, had these perfect, uh, uh, what what do you call it, just schedule events, you know, schedule times that it would be best that you attempted something like that. Sure. It's crazy. Is there anything else you want to share? Uh, I guess not, man. Well, here you've been you've been reading some of these wonderful Facebook posts over here. Yeah, I, I some am. Some of the mundane stuff. I am kind of a Facebook hooker. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it, man. I I just I I like to um, see what's going on in everyone's life, and yeah, I'm just I'm nosy too. It's probably just more nosiness than anything. I I just like to see what's going on with everybody. Right. Well, I think I'm about ready to call it a night. There's not much more we can really talk about. All right. So, uh, but, uh, you know, Chris wasn't here again. I know all the Chris fans are disappointed. They probably oh. they probably turned off the show. You know, as we as, if, as soon as like you know, Chris wasn't on the show. We've anymore. got so many listeners now that we should like have some Chris T-shirts and stuff. Yeah. You know? well, like like his face with a question mark on it. Yeah, and some kind of like. <laughs> <laughs> It's some kind of like a raffle on the show or something like that. And one, you go the, win, a, win a free date with Chris. <laughs> I'm sure everybody would really appreciate that. Yeah, he texted me and told me he wasn't on his. He, he wasn't coming tonight, so whatever. 
But uh, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I hope he doesn't listen to these. <laughs> I don't know if he does or not. <laughs> he's gonna feel like we just dog him. <laughs> well, he's not here. Anyway, uh, next time I've got uh, scheduled Nick Redfern to come on, and Nick is someone who's known, very well known in the paranormal community. The guy's written like twenty thousand books, and uh, we're gonna be talking about a book called uh, Final Events. And we'll also probably talk to Nick about his life and uh, in the paranormal. And he'll be our first like uh, he'll be our first like British guest. So we'll have some British accents up in here. Oh boy! So, uh, but uh, I have to tell Cody. To I may to the show. I, yeah, I may schedule another show before then. I'm not quite sure. I haven't gotten a guest yet to come on. But uh, if anything, maybe just like uh, Luke can burp his ABCs or something to the microphone. <laughs> So <laughs> I've always wondered if someone could fart a song. He'll be <laughs> he'll be saving lives at uh, at his uh, at his job. Yeah, so. I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll I'll probably be just sit there just sleeping underneath my glasses so nobody can see me and then someone's drowning and I get fired. Yeah, <laughs> you'll have to leave the state or something. Anyway, uh, well we're gonna we're gonna call it a night. So uh, just guys, join us next time on. Conspiranormal! It's time.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.